Morning, everybody. Uh, I know it's not Christmas. I'm not confused. Uh, I play that because that's one of my favourite pieces of music. Uh, like all good music, it moves me and affects me in a way that uh, I can't describe in words. Music is like good, good art. Uh, it impacts us at the heart level. If we try to reduce it to words, the music is this particular beat or and it involves these particular instruments, well, it doesn't do it justice, does it? Uh, it just doesn't capture the impact of it. The book of Revelation, which we're starting today, uh, is, a, is the same. It's a bit of a scary book, because uh, it's so different from most other books in the Bible. Uh, we don't know what to do with it. It's full of dragons and beasts and pale horses and things. How on earth do we make sense of it? What we often do is that we're so nervous about this weird book that we aren't actually game to open it up and read it for ourselves. So instead we get, go to 10 different experts and get them to tell us what it's about for us. Or if we do actually read it, we might treat it a bit like a code-breaking exercise. Uh, we try to work out the hidden meaning of the dragon or work out which evil power uh, this beast is, and which even more evil regime that beast is. But I want to say that the way to read the book of Revelation is like listening to a powerful piece of music. Rather than trying to figure out whether this bar is played by a trumpet or a trombone, we let the music as a whole piece speak to us. We need to take in the big picture of Revelation and let the word pictures work on our hearts. We are meant to feel the horror of the plagues, to feel the evil of the arrogant beasts who refuse to acknowledge God's rule, to be burdened by the terrible weight of judgment, to experience the relief of knowing that Satan is a defeated enemy, and above all, to be transfixed in awe and wonder by the Lamb who was slain, but now sits on the throne. We are meant to have our hearts moved by that. And we should get to the end of the Revelation and respond by falling on our knees in worship of Jesus, the Lamb who has won the victory by his blood. So that, friends, is how we meant to read the book of Revelation. Uh, we could say so much more about this very rich and complicated book, and we will say more as we go along, uh, chapter by chapter. But for now, we're going to dive into chapter 1. Um, let's pray as we come before God's Word. Father God, we thank you for this, uh, for this rich and uh, wonderful book, um, that is difficult for us to understand, difficult to know how to approach it, how to read it. Uh, and so we ask that you would speak to our hearts as we do that, that you would guide us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 1 is a nice introduction to a number of themes that come up in, throughout the whole book. Uh, John, the author, urges his listeners to keep the words of Jesus the King. He holds the keys of death 
And he has made the church, that's his people, a kingdom by his blood. In a nutshell, that's the message of chapter 1. And I want to touch on what I think are the three main themes of chapter 1. And they're my three main points. Number one, the church is a lampstand that shows the light of its king. Number two, the church is a kingdom who will rule because of the victory of the king won by his blood. And thirdly, at the centre of everything, the one we are to worship is the king who rules with a sword. So, so that's where we're going today. Uh, and so let's get into it. The first point is that the church is a lampstand to show the light. This is an image from the Old Testament. Uh, as we dig into Revelation, we'll see that the book is just jam-packed with themes and images and pictures from the Old Testament. Just as an, as an aside, here's a plug for reading your Old Testament. Friends, not just for the book of Revelation, but for the whole New Testament, you will get so much more out of it if you know your Old Testament. You'll get so much more understanding of who Jesus is and what he did if you know the Old Testament. And that is very much the case for the book of Revelation. In the book of Exodus, God told Moses to make a lampstand to go in the tabernacle. Here's a, a, a picture of it. Um, looks something like that. Uh, there's seven stems to it. And you, as you can see, each one uh, has a light. It represented... Um, it was in the tabernacle, it was made of pure gold, had seven branches on it. The lamp was never to go out and it represented God shining his light to the world, to his people and to the world. In the New Testament, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. He is the one who fulfills the meaning to this lampstand. But he also says that his disciples, his followers, are also the light of the world as they show the people Jesus. And so here in Revelation 1, those two images come together. God's people are to be faithful to their king by bearing witness to him. The idea is introduced in verse 3. You might like to, I'll have the Bible verses up here. You can follow up on the screen if you like. Uh, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written on it because the time is near. What the NIV translates here, take to heart, is actually better translated something like keep, which is in the ESV, as in keep what is written. The idea of obeying it, to be faithful to it. The purpose of the book of Revelation is the same for every other book in the Bible. And that's not, not just so we know stuff about God, so we can decode stuff, these secret messages. No, it's to transform us, to cause us to trust in Jesus and for that to translate into the way we live. And so in Revelation, the way we challenge to do that is by being a faithful witness to God. Standing up and being counted as being on his side and not the side of idolatry and evil. This isn't spelled out so much in chapter 1, but it's briefly introduced 
in the idea of the lampstand. Have a look at chapter, verse 12 with me. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstand was someone like a son of man. John goes on to tell us explicitly what the lampstands represent. Verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, then he names the seven churches, or he names the seven churches early on. Chapters 2 and 3 go on to address these seven actual churches that were in modern-day Turkey. But one of the things about Revelation is that it was a word for God's people uh, at the time it was written, the late first century AD, but it's also a word for the church through the ages, including us today. And the fact that there are seven churches in this chapter is significant because seven is the number for completeness or perfection. And so it seems that the seven churches represent the completeness of God's church all over the world throughout time. Now there's one particular thing about the seven churches that Revelation focuses on and that's how close they are to Jesus. Look again at verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. The one like a son of man comes straight from the book of Daniel. Uh, Jesus called himself the son of man. Again, uh, also from Daniel. The vision that John saw is clearly Jesus standing among the lampstands, right there with the churches. It's a picture of God's God being in his... In, Sorry, God's people being in his presence. He dwells among us. And that's why the church can be a lampstand, because we reflect his light, because he is with us. This is designed to be an encouragement to people who may have felt like they were alone and isolated. In John's day, the church was almost pathetically small and weak. The Roman Empire stood like a giant, uh, an impossible enemy, impossible to stand up against. And Rome was becoming more and more hostile to, against God's people. The reason for that was that Christians refused to join in in worshipping the Roman gods. Uh, the Roman Empire was actually quite tolerant, but what it could not tolerate is people... Um, refusing to bow down and worship the Roman gods like everyone else. They could be executed for their stubbornness if they refused to bow down to the emperor. Even then, Christians were given a chance to toe the party line and bow down to the emperor. If they did, well, all well and good, they were free to go. So that's the world that John's readers found themselves in. A world where the cost of being a light for Jesus was potentially very high. And the temptation to put your head down and go with the crowd, to burn incense to the Roman gods, to bow down to Caesar so that life would be easy and without trouble, that temptation would have been very strong. Just like it can be for us. Oh, we don't face being fed to the lions like the early Christians, but we do face the temptation of going with the flow, don't we? 
the temptation of giving in to our culture just like everybody else or being seen to be like everybody else, to not stick our necks out and claim that Jesus is the only way to be saved, to not open our mouths about Jesus because we might be ridiculed or isolated. But God wants to remind his church across history and throughout the world that he dwells among his lampstands, that he empowers them to be his light, no matter what opposition and adversity they face. Back to Revelation 1. John is shown a vision of this one like a son of man. We just saw that he is standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. And then we're told in verse 16 that it is in his, in his right hand he held seven stars. Once again, John tells us what these seven stars mean in verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, we can't really be sure what the seven angels mean. Uh, the word for angels is also the same word for messengers. Angels, messengers. It doesn't really matter because in any case, the picture is pretty clear that Jesus is holding the churches in his hand. Jesus is holding the churches in his hand. Uh, when I was a young dad, now I know for most of you that's hard to believe that there was a day when I was young, um, but I was, believe me. There was a time when uh, I held my, my young boys, my young baby boys, when they were first born in my hands. And they were some of, they're the most, some of the most cherished memories I have holding them in the palm of my hand. So completely helpless, completely reliant on me. Uh, yeah, Julie might have had some role in looking after them as well. Um, but holding onto them in our hands symbolised that we nurtured them, protected them, provided for them. And God's church in the first century, in the 21st century, is nurtured and protected by the hands of the Son of Man, Jesus. He is in our midst. But he is also holding us, notice, in his right hand. As well as being a symbol of protection, the right hand is also a symbol of power. When we tempted, the right, it represents Jesus' power and authority. And when we tempted to despair at our weakness. We need to be reminded that the Son of Man holds us in his right hand. When we're feeling isolated, alone in this world, fighting against the tsunami of the world's hostility, we need to know that he holds us in the palm of his right hand. So that's our first point, that the church is a lampstand with Jesus with us. Our next two points won't be so long. Our second point is that the church is also a kingdom that is victorious by the blood of the king. Have a look with me at verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. 
Again, for most of John's readers who knew the Old Testament, bells would have been going off as they heard this read to them. And you may recognise that the background to this is the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Moses at Mount Sinai giving the law to the people after they had come out of slavery, out of Egypt. He says this, God says this through Moses to his people. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. In the New Testament, Peter shows that God's people, the church, are the fulfilment of that calling. We see it in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In both of these passages, notice that the focus is on God's people being a light to the world. Again, tying back to the idea of the lampstand, shining God's light to a dark world. But then Revelation adds another dimension to the church being a kingdom of priests. Revelation is also about God's victory over sin and rebellion. God wins that victory by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 5 again. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 1 doesn't really unpack the idea, but as we go on in the book, we'll see that God's people were sharing God's kingdom by ruling over the nations and judging evil in the world. Judgment can happen because of Jesus' blood. Because he has dealt with sin and he has paid the price for us to be freed from its power. And Revelation makes clear that judgment will involve all the nations of the world being held accountable for their sin. Have a look at verse 7. Look, he is coming in with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Uh, two more Old Testament images in this, in this verse. The first one again is from Daniel 7. One like a son of man coming on the clouds. It's a picture of God's Messiah being given authority to rule over the nations. And the second one is from Genesis 12. You may recognise that. You may, may remember God's promise to Abraham. That Abraham would inherit the land, that God would make him a great nation and that all nations on the earth would what? Would be blessed through him. But here in Revelation we see a twist to that promise, don't we? All nations will mourn because of him. Not Abraham this time, but Jesus. They'll mourn because Jesus will bring judgment. Judgment will come because of the victory that Jesus has won by his blood. And it's a victory that the church as a kingdom of priests will share in. Third point, all will bow down in worship before the king. The book of Revelation is a word of comfort to those who are faithful 
to King Jesus. That a time is coming when every person on earth and all of creation will surrender to the King in worship. At the same time, the book of Revelation is a word of warning to those who don't acknowledge King Jesus, that a time is coming when they will surrender to the King. But it may be in judgment rather than salvation. The high point of Revelation 1 is a glorious description of the King. Let's read it again, verse from verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. We haven't got time to go through this vision in detail, but as we said at the beginning, what's important is the impression it leaves rather than necessarily all the details. Look at the impression it had on John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He was awestruck, terrified. He was confronted by someone whose eyes were like intense laser beams that pierced right through him. When he opened his mouth, it was like standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls. Coming out of his mouth was a terrible sword. When he tried to look at his face, it was like trying to look full on at the sun. Jesus goes on to tell John not to be afraid. He is the first and the last. He had died but is now alive forever and ever. He holds the keys to death and Hades. Now once again, that, that image, that, that amazing image of Jesus comes straight from Daniel 7. Only in Daniel it's talking about the Ancient of Days, Yahweh the Lord God. But here in Revelation, and one, Revelation 1, the same language is used to describe Jesus. So what John is doing here is showing that all the authority and power and glory of God himself is now given to Jesus the Son. And as the nations bow down at his feet, we see these magnificent pictures from the Old Testament finding their fulfilment and God's glory of saving people and dealing with sin coming to their climax in the book of Revelation. And friends, we find ourselves in the middle of that story. You see, we're not just passive observers of a rollicking good yarn about the triumph of good over evil. The one, like a son of man, has his blazing eyes fixed on you and I. And he is looking to see how we respond to the king. 
We'll see as we go on in the book that there's no such thing as a neutral observer. We are either for the king or against him. And so the question for us here today is, how are you responding to the king? This is not just an interesting thing to chew over, like who am I going to vote for at the next election or which footy team or NBA team am I going to support this year? The stakes here are high. King Jesus conquered death and now he holds the keys to death. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys to death and Hades. The way that we respond to King Jesus doesn't just affect life in this world, it affects us for eternity. If you're someone who has never put your faith in Jesus, you need to know that it's not an option to remain neutral. Whether you like it or not, a day is coming when you will have to bow before the king. It's just a question of whether you do it as his friend or as his enemy. I want to finish off by addressing those of us who do trust in Jesus. For the believer, the book of Revelation is a wonderful comfort. It assures us that the king has conquered. He has conquered death and sin He's defeated every nation and individual who has and will defy the rule of King Jesus and has opposed and persecuted his people. It assures us that we will share in that victory won by his blood as he paid for our sin. But Revelation is also a sober warning to us Judgment is coming. Out of the mouth of the king comes a double-edged sword. When you hear the word of God that is sharper than a double-edged sword, do you listen to it? Do you keep it? Or is it something that's become so familiar that it just washes off you like water off a duck's back without having any impact As part of God's church, how are you going at being a lampstand? How are you going at shining the light of the gospel to those around? Is your hope in coming face to face with him whose face is brighter than the sun when you will fall down in worship, knowing that his blood has made you a part in his kingdom? Amen.